going to be looking today at King Josiah and the Word of God, 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 7. The Bible says Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Did you hear that? How old was he? Eight. Anybody here eight years old? All right. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So he died when he was 39. <laughs> it's amazing to me how many people work at McDonald's and you give them a dollar and uh, uh, if, if it's a dollar and two, you give them two cents. Uh, they don't know how to do that. You know, they don't know how to do it. Anyway, so eight and 31 is 39. <laughs> so he died when he was 39. So he didn't reign that long as far as age, but he reigned a long time from the time that he began to reign. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so how old would he be? 16 years old. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars which were, which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces and he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had has sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So um, this he did when he was, I believe he was 20 years old. So introduction, what we want to give you an understanding of what's going on here is Josiah was one of a line of kings that came from the line of David. Uh, for a first king was Saul, and then you had David, and everybody after that was matched up with how they did uh, compared to David. David was the model king that all the other kings were compared to. David was known by God's own words, a man after God's own heart. In Acts 13:22, when God had when uh, he God had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he God also gave testimony and said, "I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will." So. All the other kings of Israel that came after David, his lineage would be compared to him. And uh, what we notice here is that David did all God's will. When you do what is right in the eyes of God, you're considered to be a righteous king who does right. When you don't follow God's will, you don't follow God's ways, you don't do what God says, you're considered an unrighteous king who did not do right in the eyes of God. So you have the book of Kings. In the book of Kings, you're dealing with the, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, the chronicling, the history of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The chronicler is more interested in the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're only looking at the kings of basically the Judah. Now, they'll compare them a little bit, but mostly it's about the kings of Judah. So of these kings in this book of Chronicles, what you will find as you read through it, the other kings that came after David did what was right in the eyes of God or they didn't do what was right in the eyes of God. And that begs the question, how do we know what is right in the eyes of God? How do we know God's will? So God, first of all, gave the Israelites prophets on whom the Spirit of God would move and declare the will of God to the king and to the people. 
But ultimately, God gave the Israelites the word of God through Moses. He gave them the law. And then we have uh, what we know as the Old Testament. They didn't have an Old Testament. They had the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. That's all they knew. They didn't have a New Testament, so all they had was the Bible. And they had the Word of God. They had the Scriptures. And it is the Scripture that contained the standard of the model that the king and the Israelites were to follow. Now, what does the Bible say about Scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is talking about what we know as the Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament yet. They had letters that were written by apostles, but they didn't have a New Testament yet. So when it's talking about all Scripture, it's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Not only is it a standard or it's a model, but it also is the power of God that is given to us as a people of God, because in Hebrews 4 and 12, it says, the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when the word of God is presented, when you know God's standard, not only does it uh, tell you what the values of God are, who God is like, what God's desire, what God's will is, but it also penetrates our heart to, to determine where we are on his standard, right? So in our text, Josiah, remember, he was eight years old when he first started reigning. At 16 years old, he began to bring reforms into the kingdom. And in our text, Josiah was the grandson of one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, a guy by the name of Manasseh. He led the Israelites in rebelling against God, and as a result, the king in the country was taken captive and oppressed by its enemies. Manasseh eventually repented. I was going to talk about that tonight. I decided not to. He repented. God restored him. But all the wickedness that he had done, you know, there's going to be a point where you do reap what you sow. Doesn't mean that God won't forgive you. Doesn't mean you're not going to go to heaven. We're not that. But, you know, if you have a kid, uh, uh, several kids out of wedlock before you get married, well, when you get saved, God will restore you. God will heal you. God will do all that kind of stuff. But you still have the kids. Right? And so, you know, there, there, and in no way and I'm, am I saying that any, there's any problem with the kids or having kids or all of that, but I'm just saying that's an action that we took that, that, that God's going to have to intervene to do something powerful in their lives. But the reality is you're not going to get rid of those kids because you got saved. There are some things that we do that are not going to change when you get saved. There are consequences to our actions right? There are good consequences to our actions, and there are bad consequences to our actions. Manasseh's consequences, God restored him. He began to do some great things in Israel, but all the wickedness that he did, all the things that he led Israel to do, had some consequences, and there was judgment that was going to come because of that. Now, Manasseh's son, Ammon, became king after him. Ammon is Josiah's father, but he only reigned for two years. So, at eight years old, Josiah became king, and he began to lead the country again as a young boy. And what we'll be looking at today is the account of Josiah's reign and his heart that was one that 
that he chose to follow after God in his life, as well as the role and importance of the Word of God in his quest to do what was right in the eyes of God. And by the way, Josiah was known as one of the greatest kings uh, compared to David that Israel had. You had several kings that were considered great in the eyes of the Israelites, in the eyes of the chroniclers. Uh, You had David, you had Josiah, you had Hezekiah, you had Jehoshaphat, you had a few of those. But the reality is Josiah did some wonderful things for God. So let's jump into the first point here. Josiah decides that he wants to seek the Lord. Josiah seeks the Lord. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. So when Josiah had been king for eight years, he set his heart to seek after the God of his father David. Remember, his grandfather Manasseh was a wicked king, and his father was no better. We don't know why Josiah began to seek after God, but we do know that he did. How do you seek after God when you have no guide to direct you? You do what you know. Now, what you're going to find, we're going to look at this a little bit later, they didn't have the Bible. What do you mean they didn't have the Bible? They had the Scriptures. They're going to find the Bible a little bit later on, so everything that they're doing They're not doing according to Scripture. They're just doing according to what they know. That's important for where we're going. So how do you know what to do when you want to start doing it's right? Well, you may do according to your conscience, but how many know our conscience can be seared? Our conscience is not always a good guide. I'm not saying there's there's nothing wrong with it, but your conscience is not always the best guide, right? It's better than having nothing, but if your conscience has been seared or you're, you've, you know, you've learned certain things in your life, you know, it's, it's the best you have. Or you might know some things based on your upbringing. I remember going to Mexico and my grandmother was a devout Catholic. I really believe that she knew the Lord. She loved God. Uh, we're not saying there's anything wrong with being a Catholic or you can't love God as being a Catholic. But, you know, sometimes in any denomination, any church you go to, it can just be a rote religious experience. But I believe she knew the Lord. And when I was a kid, she would teach me how to pray in her way, which is you do the sign of the cross. And she said, you say this, por la señal de la Santa Cruz de nuestros enemigos. You know, that's, we go, so I knew that. So what did I do when I got saved? I did what my grandmother taught me to do, right? It's what I knew. I didn't know anything different, right? Or maybe you remember something someone told you one day. Hey, just to be funny, it's like, hey, cleanliness is next to godliness. Maybe I need to take a shower, you know? Uh, So anyway, the bottom line is you do what you can according to what you know. Even if what you know isn't quite right, it's what you thought, it's what you were taught, it's what you remember, so that's what you do. Basically, this is what Josiah was doing. Yes, he had a little more going for him since the temple of God and the priests of God were part of his kingdom. But what we will see shortly is that source of information was also far from God's standard because they'd been going years and years and years just living unrighteously, doing idolatrous things. They hadn't, the word of God was not central to what they were doing. They were doing uh, just, just doing church, all right? 
Well, how do they know they were doing it right? Because it's what they always did. It's what my grandmother did. It's what my grandfather did. Remind me during the Thanksgiving holidays uh, of a story that was told where a lady bought a roast, and when she bought the roast, she would cut off one end, and she'd cut off the other end, and she'd put it in the oven. And then somebody came along and said, why do you do that? Well, it's what you're supposed to do when you cook a roast. He said, how do you know you're supposed to do that? Because that's what my mother taught me. So they go ask the mother, he said, uh, why, you know, how do you cook a roast? Well, you cut off one end, you cut off the other end, you put it in the oven. He said, how, why do you do that? He said, why, 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 you, why you have to do that? She said, well, that's what we're supposed to do when you cook a roast. So how do you know that? That's what my mother taught me. So the grandmother happened to be alive. So they called the grandmother and said, hey, how do you cook a roast? You know, why do you cut the ends off the roast? He said, well, I'll tell you, well, I had a small oven. In order to get the roast in the oven, I had to cut off one end, cut off the other end, to fit it in there. So, <laughs> so what's the issue? So you don't have to cut off the ends of the roast to put it in the oven. They just did it because that was what, well, that's what was always done. And, you know, sometimes in church we just do stuff because that's what we always did. When I, when I, be, when I got saved, I didn't grow up in church. So I learned to do stuff that they did in church, but I always questioned what they did in church because I didn't grow up in church, right? And so I always noticed that when people came to church, they talked different than when they were outside of church. How y'all doing? I said, why are you talking like that? I don't talk like that. Why do you talk like that? You know, I would say to myself, why are you talking like that? Why are you putting on airs? Why are you being, why are you being something that you're not outside of church, Right? And, and, so, uh, and, 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 and so that always, I, I said, you know, and when they, when they would preach, and I grew up around some good preachers, but when they would preach, they would preach in voices that wasn't their own. And I'm thinking, why do they do that? And again, I, I didn't grow up in church. So I just, and I just had this mindset. Why? So I determined, you know, I, I started, when I started preaching, I kind of started preaching like that because that was my model. But then as I got a little bit older, I said, you know, I saw how other people, I said, I want to be myself. I don't want to preach like somebody else. I don't want to be somebody else. I want to be myself, right? And so I learned how to preach by watching people around me, but I also was free to become myself uh, and, and who I was because I wasn't bound by tradition. The reason I wasn't bound by tradition, now it doesn't mean in other ways I wasn't. I'm just saying I wasn't bound by tradition because I got saved when I was older. Some of us just grow up in church and we cut off the ends of our rows, right? Okay, so I say that to get to where I was talking about is basically, you know, Josiah was just doing what he knew to do, what they've always done. Uh, in Judges 17, 5 through 6, the Bible says uh, uh, that um, in those days, it's actually just verse 6 that I wanted here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, in this particular case, there was no king because the king was the one who would have a copy with the priests of the scrolls, and they would know the word of God, supposed to know the word of God, and then they would enforce, and, and uh, no, that's not the right word, they would bring the word of God to bear in the nation that they were ruling. But there was no king in Israel at that particular time. So, second point we're going to look at is without the word of God, Josiah is bringing reforms to the land, to the people of God, and he cleanses the land. Now, the first sub-point here is what he was doing before they found the Word of God. Now, that's pretty cool. 
what they were doing, Second Chronicles 34, 3 through 7, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, and he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of Baal in his presence, the incense altars which were above them he cut down, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded image he, he broke in pieces, made dust of them, scattered on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. What's interesting is all this stuff had been taking place in Israel. The people of God, dedicated to God, who pledged to serve the Lord, were living idolatrous, wicked lives. Josiah decided to serve the Lord, and he said, we're going to get rid of this stuff, right? He also burns the bones of the priests on the altars, not the, the, the regular priests, but the, the ones that were serving idols, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes, he basically cut down the shrines and the, idol, the altars to, to the idols. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, he had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So we see what we see happening here is that Josiah began to remove from the land what he knew was wrong. He began to, it's, it's, okay, uh, let, me, let me go here. Politically, it's amazing how we have to convince ourselves, and we do convince ourselves, that taking a life is okay when inside we know it's wrong. So we try to get everybody to justify what we want to do out of convenience to satisfy our conscience that knows it's wrong. We figure if we can get it legislated and everybody says it's okay, then it's going to make it okay, but it's never okay. Not only does it violate the Word of God, it violates your conscience. I'm talking about abortion. You hearing what I'm saying? We can get everybody together, get enough to agreement somehow to say, no, it's wrong. There are things that we know is wrong. There's so many Christians today in churches that are doing the same thing, not so much with abortion. Yeah, they're doing it with abortion. They're doing it with gay marriage. They're doing all these kind of things. But we're trying to find ways to legitimize what we know is wrong. I don't want to do, and I don't want to live wrong. I want to live right. I want to do what's right, right? Um, but he was trying to do what was right to the extent that he knew, he knew these things were wrong. He didn't have to have the Word of God to tell him these were wrong. He knew these are wrong. And yet Christians don't know that you can't live in, as a Christian and in the world at the same time. Right? Because we're trying to legitimize something that God says is wrong. But innately, something inside of us should say, this ain't right. Okay? It's okay if you say, I want to choose to live wrong. I'm not saying it's okay with God. I mean, the problem that I have is when we try to make what we want to do right. And it ain't right. We have the freedom to do what we want. We want to live in sin. Go live in sin, but don't call your sin not sin. It is wrong. You want to live in rebellion? That's fine, but go live in rebellion. You have the freedom to do that, but don't say it's okay with God because it's not. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one 
comes to the Father except through me. You can't reconcile with God, but you can't... Okay, let's see what I I wrote here. You're not going to get to heaven without Christ. You, You can't escape judgment without reconciling with God. Uh, You cannot pretend to be a Christian and be involved in New Age, dabble in Wicca, embrace Buddhist principles, uh, 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 somehow or another uh, think that Islam is okay and a way to get to God. No other religion will connect you with God. It's only through Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, innately, you should know that I can't be a Christian and do these things. And yet we have Christians all the time. And yes, I'm meddling a little bit all the time. Say, it's okay for a Christian to do yoga. Really? You know that yoga was developed as a religious practice for false idols. Why is it okay now for Christians to do yoga? Because I want to. I know. Let me get away. In essence, that's what Josiah was eliminating. He was tearing down what he knew was wrong in the land that stood in opposition to God. Now, while this is a great place to start in seeking after God, there's another thing that also can lead us astray in our worship of God that we also need to address if we're going to be living according to God's will. What is that, you might ask? It's doing things that we think or feel is right, but somehow in the end, it's not. Proverbs 14 and 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, is a way of death. Right? So then we brings us to the second sub-point, which is the reforms that were taking place after they found the book of the law. All right? So 2 Chronicles 34, 18 through 21. Then Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now remember, they're doing all these reformations. They're doing all this stuff in the land. But what we're going to find out is they were doing it without the word of God. So they were doing a good thing. But what they're going to find is that what they thought was good was not necessarily enough. Have you ever talked to somebody that's not right with God or that you ask them, are you right with God? They say, well, I'm a good person. Right? Good in whose sight? Well, in my sight. Compared to who? Compared to everybody around me. Well, how do you compare to God? Well, he's going to take, he's going to take, if I do more good than bad, then I'm going to be okay. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Right? Now, God is pure, holy. When we stand in his presence, if we're not like him, we're, we're, <laughs> we're not going to be declared right because God's, God's just. His word is true, right? I, and some of y'all are new, so I'll tell this story. Some of y'all have heard it many times, but when I first moved to Lake Jackson in 2004, we bought a white house. Now, we moved into that house, and that was in October. In December, it never snows, but in December it snowed. Moved in at the end of October, December it snowed. When we came up and pulled up to my house, I don't know if I was walking or I was driving a car, all I noticed was that my house 
is not white. I thought it was white. But when it was put into the uh, presence of something that was much more white, I began to realize my house was a dingy yellow. Kind of like my teeth. I thought they were white until I put something really white next to my teeth and I realized my teeth are an off-white, right? Not really what I thought it was. So when we compare ourselves to the Lord, then even though we thought we were good, what we're going to find is we are far short of God's standard, right? So they find a book, and it happened when the king, Shaphan read it before the king, and thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law. He tore his clothes. That's a sign of, oh, this is bad. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Now, some people believe that it was the book of Deuteronomy that was found. Other people believe it was the Pentateuch that was found. But the bottom line is what we can know for sure is they found the Scriptures. And as good as they were doing, we're not minimizing what they were doing, when they opened up the Scriptures, they realized what they were doing was far short of the, the standards that God had in his work. Now remember, Josiah had set out to serve God, was eliminating false idols from the land while cleaning out the temple. They find a book. What is this book? It's the law of Moses. It's the scriptures that God gave the Israelites. What Josiah found is that when he read the book is that what they were doing was far short of what God revealed in his word. The bottom line is that God's word is the standard for what is right and wrong. If I were to ask you here to go out and cut me, a, if I, I gave you a saw and I gave you a piece of wood out there, and go cut me something that is, um, you know, three foot long. But you have to just do it by going out there and figuring out just in your own mind, ah, it looks like about three foot, right? And, I, and you came back, you said, well, this is, this is about three foot. You might be pretty close, but until we take a tape measure to it, we don't know if it's three foot or not. It might be 12, I mean, it might be one foot. It might be two foot. It might be four foot. It might be two foot nine inches. It might be three foot two inches. But you don't know exactly what it is until you put it next to the standard, right? The standard is the word of God. Well, I got close. The standard, wherever you go, if you work in the plants, you have a standard. My dad was an engineer. My dad, as an engineer, had to determine whether something fell within the parameters of the standards that had been set. And if the, they engineered something outside the parameters, it would fail. If they engineered something inside the parameters, they would pass. What's interesting was when my dad became a diabetic, standards went out the window because... I don't want the standards. I want what I feel. What I feel is right is what is right. He would argue with the doctor that his sugars were fine. When his sugars were 200 and something, he would say, my sugars are fine. That's good. No, the standard is 90 to 110. If you're not in there, you're outside of the standard. No, that's not true. 
Why would he do that? Because he wanted to keep doing what he was doing. And that's why you need the standard, because if you don't have a standard, you're going to find a way to justify what you want. You'll find a way to make it okay to have sex outside of marriage. You'll find a way to make it okay to have a, a relationship with the same-sex person. Now, you're free to do all this kind of stuff. There's no, you, God, God is not taking away your free will, but you can't say that God's okay with it. Right? You're free. Let's, this is something not so, uh, not so difficult. But at the same time, a lot of people in this area do this. You're free to say, well, I can be a Christian and not go to church. Right? Now, we're not saying you can't go to heaven and not go to church. But if you want to do what the Lord says, you've got to go to the standard. What does the standard say? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves. Right? So, anyway... You've got to have a standard. God's Word is the standard for not only what is right and wrong, but for what He expects of us, what His will is. In Second Chronicles 34, 26-28, it says, But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought back word to the king. It's amazing how you'll have... Two kinds of people, when the, well, actually three kinds of people, but the bottom line is the Bible kind of describes it this way, is that you hear the word of the Lord and you get convicted and you humble yourself before the Lord and you say, I was wrong. You hear the word of the Lord and you get convicted, but instead of humbling yourself, you get mad or you run away or you try to tell everybody else why they're wrong. So the bottom line is, if God is Lord, when we find that we're outside of his will, the Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Submit yourselves to God. That means humble yourself, submit yourself to what he says is right. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The one that gives us problems is not the Lord, it's the enemy. The enemy comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, how does the enemy get sway into a Christian's life? By convincing you that what you want to do outside of God's parameters is okay with God. God's okay with it. God understands, right? And again... We're free to do whatever we want, but this is how the enemy, and the enemy comes in and keeps, he gets us to believe a lie. Yet one lie that Christians believe a lot is that I can have unforgiveness in my heart and still be okay. Right? God understands. Listen, he may understand what happened to you, but it doesn't mean that it's okay to hold unforgiveness in your heart. Well, how does he expect me to forgive someone? Because forgiveness is a choice. And we forgive because out of God's mercy and grace, 
He forgave us a debt we could never repay, and he expects us to forgive a debt that others have against, or we have against others, or others have created in our lives that is compared to what he did for us, minuscule. Right? So I don't feel like forgiving. You'll never feel like forgiving. Forgiveness is a powerful feeling. You choose to obey. And you say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to do. I will to do what you say. Help me to do it. And God will give you grace and mercy. Right? Not, Lord, I, I think you're okay with it because you know, you know what they did. But even Jesus on the cross of Calvary said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? So anyway, when King Josiah found the book of the law, he didn't just put it aside in a bookcase. He didn't just give it a prominent place on a table in his house. No, he actually read the book. Uh, reminds me of a, a, a preacher that was invited to this couple's house, and um, he noticed that they had a really nice set of silverware, you know, that they put out for special occasions or whatever the case may be. And so they put it out and they set it aside. And then um, they had conversation. Of course, they were talking about how much, you know, they, 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 they really love God and, and, you know, how they serve God and how the Bible was so important to them in life. And so anyway, he finally, after some visit, he decided to leave. And um, sometime later, they realized that the silverware, like one of the spoons from the silverware was missing. And they couldn't find it. No matter where they looked, they couldn't find it. And they began to talk to themselves. Why, that preacher took our silver spoon. Can you believe that preacher? He would take our silver spoon? I can't believe it. And over a process of year of a year, they, began, they were just convinced the preacher took the spoon. Finally, a year later, they saw the preacher, and, and they said to themselves, why would you take our spoon? And I said, I didn't take your spoon. He said, if you would have read your Bible, you would have found I placed it, it right there. King Josiah didn't just have a book, he read the book. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, it says, Also it shall be when he, the king, sits on the throne of the kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests or the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, and he prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. I didn't put it, I don't think I put it in here, but it reminds me of Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does, it may, does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He shall bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaves shall not wither. And whatever he doeth shall prosper. Where does your prosperity come from? From submitting yourself and doing the Word of God, right? So many uh, Christians, and yeah, I'm talking to us, but mainly, not so much y'all, those people that are listening to us somewhere down the road, right? 
um, so so many of us uh, Christians, we 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 have so much available to us. We have Bibles and all different kinds of versions, right? We have um, apps. We have um, you know auditory Bibles. You can have it listened to. Uh, we have more availability of the Word of God than throughout all of history. Yet in and I, I can't prove it, I don't have statistics, but I would probably say that we're probably some of the most illiterate Christians throughout history when it comes to the Word of God. Because we don't take advantage of it. Because, you see, it's not having the Word of God, it's reading the Word of God. And it's not just reading the Word of God, it is doing the Word of God, right? So as a result... Uh, well, actually, in Second Chronicles 34, 30 through 33, the Bible says, The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people, great and small. He read in this the hearing of the works, the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place, made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. And so the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God all the days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. As a result of his heart to do God's will, when he died, the epitaph given to him by the chronicler was this, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, Second Chronicles 35, 26 through 27, according to, what, uh, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So uh, the acts of Josiah and his goodness. This is what God chose to write about. Josiah. At the very beginning, he said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. At the very end of his life, Josiah was called a, a, a person that did works for God and did good things for his people. Why? Because he took the Word of God, he lived the Word of God, he enacted the Word of God, and when you live in accordance with God's Word and God's principles, I believe you experience the blessings and the prosperity of the Lord in your life. I'm not saying that you're going to have uh, like $10 million in the bank or you're going to drive. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying is that God has promised in his word to bless and to prosper his people. But in order to do that, you've got to submit to his word. You've got to do things his way, right? God is having written down the word, the legacy of Josiah. It's a legacy that God wanted his people to know and learn from. It's a legacy that we're reading about and studying today. So how do we conclude this study? So we see that Josiah reveals to us the importance of not only seeking after God, but to do it according to the word of God. We are to serve God on his terms, not ours. Um, I, I always remember someone uh, saying, I said, this is the Word of God. We live by the Word of God. And they, they, they supposedly, uh, uh, you know, uh, same as I'm a Christian, I believe in God. They said, but the Bible says this. They said, well, that's your truth, not mine. Actually, it's His truth. Right? So you can't pick and choose. You can't uh, say, well, I'll do this, but I won't do that. This is not a book of suggestions. It is the Word of God. 
right? And until you come to that place and recognize it's the Word of God and live by it, even if you recognize it's the Word of God, if you don't live by it, you won't experience what God wants you to live, uh, to experience in life. And, you know, Christians will say all the time, they'll say, Christianity just didn't work for me. Well, why didn't it work for you? Did you do what the Word of God said in your life? Well, but if you press them, they really didn't do that. They did some things. They did do other things. Well, I thought God was going to bless me. Did you tithe? Well, you know, I gave. Did you tithe unto the Lord? If you want the Lord to prosper you financially, are you doing submitting to his word? Are you doing, well, I don't have the money. I, I, I don't think I have to do that. Okay, you can do whatever you want. But if you don't submit to the principles, you're not going to experience the blessings and the promises, right? So Josiah reveals to us the importance of not only seeking after God, but to do it according to the Word of God. We are served God on His terms. What are His terms? The will of God is found in the Scriptures that He has given to us. It's found in the Bible. John 14 and 15, Jesus Himself said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Hosea 4 and 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The context is lack of knowledge of the Word of God. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine, these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. By the way, do you know what sand is? It's little bitty rocks. Little truth here, little truth there, little truth here, little truth there, but there's no solid foundation. It's only when you build a house on the rock that your house, your life will, what's the right word, will persevere, will overcome, will live victoriously, will prosper according to God's standards. That's when you do things His way. Romans 12 and 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And then I already quoted it, Psalms 1, 1 through 3. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever you do shall prosper. Now, how many of y'all, and listen, I know there's excess. I know people have taught excess. But doesn't remove the truth from the fact that God says, if you keep his word, you'll prosper. Right? Now, well, I started keeping the word of God and I didn't prosper. Well, you also have to realize you're planting seed. And you have a lot of seed that's been planted before you got saved. And some of that seed that you planted before you got saved is still kind of producing fruit. But after a while, you start planting seed of the word of God. Pretty soon, his harvest is going to take the, overtake the other harvest. And you'll begin to see change in your life. But you've got, you got to give it time. I think uh, Lee was telling me about uh, a, a guy went around a tree and looking for fruit. The gardener was looking for fruit. Uh, uh, the, the, the owner of the, the, the garden was looking for fruit, and, and he couldn't find any. He said, told the, told the person keeping care of the barn, cut it down. He said, no, give it another year. If it doesn't produce fruit in another year, then you can cut it down. So I was looking for immediate fruit when I got saved. And I saw some things when I got saved. 
but I didn't see what I thought I was going to see. And when I read that passage, when I was just first saved, I realized this is not a short-term thing. God thinks long-term. And I've got to stay at this for the long term and, and see some of us, uh, uh, you know, God's planting little seeds in our life and those seeds are going to become a great tree and eventually become a great forest, but trees don't grow overnight. Right? They take time to grow, but if you'll let God do his work, that tree will grow and it'll produce fruit and it'll produce more trees, it'll produce more fruit. The next thing you know, not only is your life, are you living for the Lord, but you're building a heritage, you're building a, a lineage, you're building a house in which God's will and God's purpose and the presence of God reside and you will look back one day upon your life and go, wow, I can't believe what God has done. As long as you see it through, persevere, build your house on the rock, on Jesus, amen.